the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. Now I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline. So glad to have you in the house. I trust that you had a wonderful weekend, a marvelous worship service, and that you are ready for the next two hours to put on your thinking cap, to really think about the way your world operates, the way you actually perceive the world, and how you actually imbibe data and information, propaganda, nudes, etc., etc., I'm going to challenge you today because some things have kind of been laid on my my, my heart and mind uh, around recent events that have uh, not, if you will, uh, produced anything new or, or radical, but rather a kind of continuation of the same type of false assumptions and false ideas and wrong notions that are both universally held in the secular world, as well as in the religious world. You guys know, by the way, Jesse Gistan, the host of the Monday edition of Lifeline uh, for the rest of the week, Craig Robertson. At the end of the uh, week, we have a uh, a wonderful pastor, uh, Phil Howard, do, doing the Friday program here uh, as well. For years, I have been... Uh, I've been sharing with the audience that listens to me here locally in the in the Bay Area, as well as um, across the nation via uh, the internet and websites and other other forms like that. For years, I have uh, uh, you know kind of operated outside of the norm, if you will, and I don't say this with any kind of uh, uh, braggadocia or any kind of uh, sense of privilege. It's just a conviction that I have about certain things that I have uh, been exercised by for years. And and one of them ha- ha- have to do with the way that the Christian community uses terminology and phraseology to try to woo and win the world. And the phraseology and terminology that it uses does not actually have any real biblical basis whatsoever. Uh, it's almost kind of like the ubiquitous evolutionary theory that is gone by and held by most of our world as a an a priori assumption, a fact beyond any question, a reality that does not require investigation or or debate. How did we move from a biblical worldview, a a, uh, a a a notion a notion of deism, if not again creationism, or a, a healthy Judeo Christian worldview that dominated the world for thousands of years, to now 
virtually uh, the whole world has slipped into the darkness of humanism and has bought into the notion of Darwin's theory of evolution. And and definitely on a scientific level, uh, they have completely rejected the notion of a personal God who has created everything and by whom all things uphold even to this point so that. Christians are way behind the gun apologetically in our secular institutions when it comes to defending the biblical claims of a creator God and the process by which creation has been brought into existence. Our purpose, our goals, our destiny, fundamental principles of uh, of epistemology around what we can know or what we should know. Um, I'm not actually talking about that today, that that, you know, those issues have to be dealt with every time you go into a secular context and people begin to talk about uh, hundreds of millions and millions of years ago. Once they begin to talk like that, you know that you have to address a massive mountain of assumptions around how long this creation and how long this earth has been in existence. You got a lot to do there. I'm going to deal with something a little bit more subtle, a little bit more emotionally challenging, a little bit more uh, personal, if you will. Uh, There are two things I want to talk to you about today. The first is love, L-O-V-E, love. And then the other thing I want to talk to you about are lies. I want to talk to you about love and I want to talk to you about lies. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to talk to you about the big lie that love is unconditional. I want to talk to you about the big lie that love is unconditional. For those of you who have listened to me for a long time and you can, you know, you can stand the fury of my, my, uh, my worldview and even my biblical worldview around a number of things that go on in our world, you know that uh, I have uh, stated for a long time um, that biblical love should not be defined as unconditional. That the notion of unconditionality in terms of the characteristics and attributes of love is unbiblical. It's just not. It's a myth. It's a myth, just like uh, evolution is a myth. And 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 I know there are prominent persons in our Christian world, and and virtually everybody in the secular world adopts terminology that Christians uh, carelessly begin to propagate, and they use it because it sounds good rolling rolling off your lips, right? Uh, we need to love one another unconditionally. Uh, and I've said that 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 modifier to that noun love or that modifier to the noun to the verb love. You can use love as a verb or a noun. When you put the modifier on the adjective unconditional, you actually negate the intrinsic meaning of the word love. You actually demolish love as having any intrinsic qualities uh, that mandate the necessity of parameters and boundaries. And uh, and moral and ethical excellencies by which love is noted for being good. You really are destroying the biblical concept of love when you use the term unconditionality. Uh, As I stated, you know, a lot of prominent pastors, Stanley, Charles Stanley has often used that term. Chuck Swindoll has often used it. And, you know, I I see what they're doing. But, you know, like all of us, we don't always really investigate terms that roll off our off of our lips really well and and then begin to examine whether or not I'm using a term that's biblical and can be defended by the Bible on a consummate level. Now, 
I remember this was about seven or eight years ago, Dr. R.C. Sprawl, uh, operating out of a sound philosophical coherent position of exegesis, came to the conclusion that God's love is not uh, unconditional, that to articulate it as such is really a fallacy of, of logic. And, and John MacArthur recently came to it too. Him and RC hung out for a while. As you guys know, they were not originally friends, but they became friends over time. And iron sharpens iron when you are willing to allow your set of theological assumptions to actually be challenged from a different angle. You can actually grow. Um, and John MacArthur has recently comprehended this error and also has rejected the term uh, unconditional. That's why you won't hear John using the term unconditional love uh, when we, uh, you know, deal with the fundamental use of the Greek term uh, agape, which most people trans uh, phrase it uh, agape. It's really agape. Uh, there are four Greek New Testament words. Don't want to bore you. All of them are relevant. Phileo, storge, all of them are, are relevant Greek terms. Uh, agape is, is one of them. Uh, very, very, uh, very important terms, and they're all relative. But this larger one that we call agape um, is the one that dominates most of our gospel theme for God, for God's soul, agape, the world, agapeos, agape, the world, for, for God so loved the world. Did he love it unconditionally? Were there were there no intrinsic qualities of that love that God exhibited in his objects in this world, towards this world, that did not mandate on the part of love some kind of conditionality? One of my arguments is going to be that because we have messed up the concept of love, uh, the secular world has taken it up and adopted it as a framework to uh, oppose anyone that would challenge them on anything that they are doing, saying that you are not loving me. I'm going to demonstrate this in a moment with Ellen DeGeneres and Dwayne Wade. But my argument is, or my premise would be to you uh, and to the secular world that misrepresents the concept of love is that love cannot be love and be unconditional. That is to be totally permissive. An unconditional love accepts everyone the way they are without any kind of mandate for meeting certain requisites by which that love can fully embrace that object uh, in a way of mutual good. That's permissive. True love, secondly, is defined by qualities that both emit um, expect and demand true goodness, true right behavior, true right conduct, and true right motives. Don't push back. You know, I'm going to use the Bible in a moment to share with you how I'm assimilating this definition of biblical love. True love does not rejoice in evil. It does not rejoice in evil. It does not embrace evil People. It does not embrace evil conduct. It does not support lies. True love does not just simply let you lie, let you let you do evil. It does not celebrate deception. It does not rejoice in iniquity. Iniquity is deception. True love does not embrace distortions or destructive behavior. True love will tell you that's wrong. True love will do that. 
And true love is not uh, an attribute of God that's ubiquitous everywhere in the world and all encompassing and given to all. God says in Proverbs chapter eight, you've heard it, verse 17, I love them that love me. Now, that's conditional, ladies and gentlemen. So you got to deal with that, brothers, who are so-called theologians and pastors. You really do have to. You can't hop and skip and jump over the Bible verses, land on a verse that seems to say what you wanted to say by way of hijacking a definition into it. And you'd have to face other passages of Scripture. If Proverbs chapter 8, which is really depicting wisdom in a personified way, Christ is really speaking here. He says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early will find me. All of that's conditional. On the first part of that verse, a sound exposition says that it's exclusive. I love them that love me. That's exclusive. Now watch this. It's conditional. And those that seek me early will find me. It clearly negates the assumption that wisdom loves everybody the way they are and and wants them to remain that way. And in fact, the best way to love them is to let them be who they are. And yet that term unconditional love is often used carelessly by preachers who cannot defend it biblically whatsoever and yet continue to hijack it into their emotional appeal to people around the gospel. And if I have time today, I will let you know how offensive that concept is when we define love based upon the cross work of Jesus Christ, that on the cross, love is explicitly exposed and definitively declared for what it is. When you understand the love of God in Christ and the cross work of Jesus Christ, the last thing you can draw is that it is either all encompassing and universal or that it is unconditional. I mean, John 3.16 demands that you withdraw that assumption. For God so loved the world in this way. That he gave his only begotten son. That's the mode of expression. That's how God loved us. He gave his only begotten son. That's the mode of expression. In order that, here's the purpose. Whosoever, literally the ones believing in him, Those that believe in him, those that come to Christ, those that trust Christ should not perish, but have everlasting love. You can't use John 3.16 to depict an unconditional love of God. This is why the lost, unregenerate world does not accept Bible doctrine. When we first start off saying God loves you unconditionally, here's what the Bible says. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. If you don't, you're going to hell. They go, wait a minute, wait a minute, you said unconditionally. So what I'm going to do when I come back is share with you how that that term has been hijacked and used by Ellen DeGeneres uh, with a dialogue between her and Dwayne Wade around one of his children who is now asserting himself to be a her. This is why I want to talk to you about love and lies. Because if you love people, according to 1 Corinthians 13, you won't rejoice in iniquity. And you won't cover transgression. And you won't deny telling people the truth. 
This is a Monday edition of Lifeline. Got to take a break, pay some bills. I want you to just kind of sit in your seat and hear me out. And then you can get on the phone lines and we can discuss and we can debate and we can argue if you want to. But I I really want to help you to think through. If you're going to embrace biblical love, you're going to have to take a hit for it because biblical love operates in correspondence with the character of God. And God's not permissive by any stretch of the imagination. He's just not permissive. You can tell God, tell people that God loves you. And then when you go to put in the parameters of conditionality based upon the call to repentance and faith in Christ, this is where they're going to reject you because you're playing sleight of hands. This is the Monday edition of Lifeline. Got a whole lot more to talk about because I want to talk about the lie now, the lie, the lie that's coming close to your home and mine every day for which we have to choose to determine whether or not we're going to love people and tell them the truth or lie to people and embrace their distortion and deception of reality. It's the Monday edition of Lifeline. If you want to get on the line before they fill up, I guess you can. one 888 But if you're not calling to engage me on this topic, don't call. Because there's so many people that are wanting to talk uh, about what I stir up and, and bring to the table for dialogue that I really don't want you to waste any airtime with something that you want to talk about. I'm not going to put you on. Just want to let you know, because I really do want to engage the believing community about why it's important that they be biblically sound in their terminology. Otherwise, they will justify the wicked and the ungodly in the use of terms that the wicked and the ungodly will say that came from your community. And that wouldn't be love. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. The time, 531. Two lines open, one 367 Two lines open, one 367 All right, so I started off in my monologue uh, sharing with you the overwhelming challenge that we have in the Christian community of uh, overcoming a kind of man-centered humanism by which we frame and uh, couch overtures of a call to the world and uh, uh, depicting what we would say is God's love as being unconditional. And I, and I have stated that for years, that concept has misrepresented biblical truth, that if you allow the Bible to actually speak explicitly about the nature of God's love, that the last thing God's love is, is permissive. The last thing that God's love is, is, is weak. The last thing that God's love is, is impotent. The last thing that we can say about God's love is that it's careless. The last thing that we can say about God's love is that it's non-influential, that it's uh, ethically vacuous or morally uh, compromised. The last thing you and I can do uh, uh, when we talk about the love of God is misrepresent God's love as being uh, distinguished from his attributes of righteousness and holiness and, and justice. You don't want to do that. You don't want to because at, 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 at the foundational level of what we're talking about, quite frankly, when we talk about God being love. First John chapter four, we are talking about God being that kind of love that has expressed itself by virtue of what he has created and what he has decreed and what he has purposed and what he is doing in the world. And the world hates God. It hates God. Now, I wouldn't hate God, ladies and gentlemen, if God's love was unconditional. It just wouldn't hate God if God just let 
people do whatever they wanted to do. If, if love was permissive, if love was just kind of uh, affirming uh, without being discriminatory, without being uh, morally and ethically rigid and, 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 and exercising boundaries of, of right and wrong. If love just let people do whatever it wants to do, then, yeah, the world would love God. But according to Psalm 109, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says, for my love, they hated me. They spoke evil against me. They seek to destroy me because I am representing what is good and right before them. Literally, that's what it says. For my love, they hated me. Now, no one hates another person when that other person has exhibited a love that is unconditional. No one hates an unconditional love as the secular world would uh, would want the Christian world to exhibit and the Religious world that really is not operating out of a biblical worldview would not uh, uh, if a biblical worldview is being exercised by the believer. Here's what you're going to get. Jesus said in John 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. There you go. And it becomes even more sticky if you and I were to just stick with the word of God and begin to actually work through scripture and see, whoa, not only is God's love reflective of his character and the world hates God. But God's love is communicated definitively in the lives of men and women on a number of levels that are conditional, that are conditional intrinsically. I mean, for those of you who want to begin now the the spiraling down into the process of of searching scripture, I'll give you a few more verses. I gave you Proverbs chapter 8, 17. I love them that love me. Those that seek me early will find me. Conditional as can be, exclusive as well. Here's another one, Hosea chapter 9, verse 15. I remember when I was a very young man, a very, very young man in the faith, and I was moved by a lot of this syrupy evangelical talk and would operate under the assumption of an unconditional love motif, although I didn't really... You know, I didn't really uh, preach it much. I didn't teach it much because I was really always concerned about that particular adjective uh, attached to the noun. But would you listen to what Hosea said? Now, you guys know the book of Hosea. It's about God loving national Israel, though Israel is acting like a whore. He tells Hosea to marry a harlot, an adulteress, rather. When I listen to what God says in Hosea 9.15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal. This is Hosea speaking as a lawyer for God, saying that Israel now has left Jerusalem, has gone to Gilgal and has engaged in idolatry. All their wickedness is in Gilgal for there. Watch this. I hated them. God said he hated his people who have abandoned him and gone to idolatry. I hated them. Now watch this for the wickedness of their doings. I will drive them out of my house. You know what we call that? Divorce. That's why Israel ended up out of the promised land into Babylon, into Medo-Persia, and then in bondage to the Roman Empire after uh, the Medo-Persian rule. God kicked them out. He divorced them. And notice what it says. I will love them no more. So much for unconditional love, right? All their princes are revolters. Look at the verse yourself and squirm if you need to and wrestle if you have to and get mad at me if you need to, but begin to work through it. I can give you more. 
But your Bible is clear that God exercises a just, uh, a holy and righteous love that both hates and loves according to his own discretion without compromising his nature ever. And here, national Israel is under the wrath of God. And God says, I will love them no more. And what is he talking about there? I'll just give you a framework before I move to the more secular foundation for our discourse around don't use that term, unconditional love, because Ellen DeGeneres loves it. Well, what it means is, is when you understand that God's love is an obligatory love, the Old Testament word is hesed, the New Testament word is agape, it's an obligatory love that's rooted in covenant. It's an obligatory word that's rooted in covenant. When God has purposed to bring men and women individually, as couples, as families, as nations into his covenant, then within the framework of his has said, he shows loving kindness. It's still conditional, however. It has never not been conditional. When people talk about the love of God in Christ, there's your conditionality right there. Very clear, the conditional components of God's love. If God's love was unconditional, no one would be in hell. No one would be in hell. Uh, And if God's love were unconditional, God wouldn't be laying out rules and guidelines and parameters and boundaries and and prohibitions as he has done all through his word and through his servant, especially Jesus, whom they hung on a cross because he showed them their sins. National Israel hated Jesus because he was the light that came into the world to let them know that they had far, far missed the mark of what it means to be children of the living God. Now, what do I mean by Ellen DeGeneres? Well, it was Dwayne Wade, as I had stated in his uh, uh, at some point uh, coming out, no pun intended, and supporting his son, Zion, who wants to be transgendered. And uh, Ellen DeGeneres had him on the show because whenever any secular popular person begins to collapse into the pseudoscience man culture of politics and religion, the pseudoscience man, meaning the false man, uh, once they collapse into that system, then they're going to be lauded and applauded. And that's exactly what what was done. I I quote, listen, Dwayne Wade said on the Ellen DeGeneres show that he and his actress wife, um, Gabrielle Union, um, are the parents of a transgender child. Okay, good enough. During Tuesday's episode of Ellen's, the 38-year-old retired NBA star revealed, me and my wife, Gabrielle Union, or Gabrielle Union, however you want to put it, are proud parents of a child in the LGBTQ plus community. And we are proud allies as well, Wade continued. We take our roles and our responsibility as parents very seriously. So when our child comes home with a question on this, yeah, on this earth, if you're going to try to be someone you're not, um, that's a question. It's like you're not. See, I don't know if I want to, if I'm going there, probably not. Let me see here. Oh, here it is. I'm sorry. I got the page wrong. When our child comes home with a question and comes home with an issue, when a child comes home with anything, it's our job as parents to listen to that, to give them the best information that we can. Agreed. To give them the best feedback that we can. Agreed. And that doesn't change because sexuality is now involved in it. Disagreed. The athlete said that his 12-year-old child now goes by the name Zaya and uses she, her pronouns, which I've talked to you about before. 
So once Zion, our 12-year-old, came home, first Zion, I don't know if everyone knows, originally named Zion, born as a boy, came home and said, hey, I want to talk to you guys. I think going forward, I think from this point on, I'm ready to live my truth. There it is, my truth. And I want to be referenced as she and her. I would love for you guys to call me Zaya Wade Shear. Wade told DeGeneres that he wants to give Zaya the best opportunity to be her best self, adding that he and Union are getting educated on the LGBTQ issues and that Union had reached out to everyone on the cast of polls. Some of y'all know that program. If you don't, search it out. The Ryan Murphy Brad Fakuk produced FX series depicted the lives of LGBTQ people in the ballroom and club culture of the 80s and 90s in New York City. DeGeneres praised Wade for his open-minded attitude and acceptance of Zaya. There it is, open-minded attitude and acceptance. First of all, she said, I think it's what every parent should be is what you are being right now. Now listen carefully to what she says. DeGeneres said, which is unconditionally loving your child and supporting your child in whoever they are. See, the reason I bring this article to you, ladies and gentlemen, is because this is coming to your door soon. After Wade's interview on Ellen, Union posted an Instagram video of Zaya in which she speaks about her decision to live her truth. Now, watch this. Meet Zaya. She's a compassionate, loving whip, smart, and we are so proud of her. Union captioned the clip. It's okay to listen to. Love and respect your children exactly as they are. Love and like good people. In the video, Zaya, the 12-year-old boy, says, to anyone who is afraid they will be judged, I would say, you know, don't even think about that. Just be true to yourself. That's what he says. Just be true to yourself. So everyone has their own truth. That's basically what this person is saying. So just be true to yourself. I want to make sure that I get that quote right. I know it can be tough, definitely, she continued. But I think you push through to be the best you you can be, and especially more recently is becoming more accepting, even though there's obviously a lot of people out there who still are, watch this, set more in the back in their days mode or way of mind. But I think even through hard times, you got to push through it. It's worth it. Wade is also father of, of, of several other kids. I won't get into that. But there you go. Zaya now is emboldened enough to now not only uh, take that position, but then to tell everybody else to do it and that, you know, there are going to be a lot of people out there who are in the back in the day type mode. That's, that's called a euphemism, back in the day. And euphemisms are not always euphemistic. And what that means is it's an exchange of a literal word for something that is is different but softer and good, like the euphemism for being uh, dead is departed. The euphemism for dying is they left us. The euphemism for funerals is a homegoing service. Okay, y'all got that? That's what euphemisms are today. So now I have some questions to ask you around that before I take a break. Got to take a break. Come back and pay after we pay some bills, we can kind of get into this. Does love let people live a lot? Does love let people live a lot? 
love simply permit people to believe whatever they want to believe? If so, evangelism is over with. If so, evangelism is over with. If so, Ezekiel 3 no longer is even a formidable passage to consider. Son of man, take this scroll and eat it. It's going to be sweet in your mouth, bitter in your belly. And go to this people and tell them they are a rebellious house. The man or the woman that hears you and turns from their wicked ways will save themselves from destruction. And their blood will not be on your head. If you do not tell them what the righteous standards of a holy and loving and just God is, their blood will be required of you. See the predicament that the church is in today? And I raise the question, does love let people live a lie? Does love let people say, I am not a sinner? Does love let people say there is no God? Does love let people say there's no hell or heaven like John McCarthy has has stated in that song? Does love let people say the Bible is not the word of God? Does love let everyone have their own truth? We call that what? Relativism. Does love say all roads lead to heaven? Does love let that happen? And you go, no, 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 no. That's because love is not in any way whatsoever unconditional. We got a whole lot more, but the lines are full. So when I come back from the break, I'll tap into those of you who are ready to engage me on this topic. And then uh, some 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 other things I want to share. I want to share some other things going forward into the second hour. But stay right there because I'll give you all the biblical passages to reinforce my argument that we have gone far, far away from our love towards God in the area of capitulating to a kind of humanistic doctrine of just letting people assume that God loves them no matter what they are, what they're doing. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. Okay, we're back. The time C five fifty two on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let's clear out some lines for those of you who are wanting to get in. Let me start on line number four with Dan and Sonoma. Dan and Sonoma, are you there? Yes, I uh, want to preface my remark by saying that uh, if people only listen to the headline of what they said, that you said it might be mixed up. But if they listen to your detail. It would not be mixed up. I agree. I, I, you, and, you, you've you uh, been listening long enough to know two things that, you know, I will at length explain what I'm talking about. But we do live in a culture, you know that, Dan, of soundbite listeners that uh, when they don't really want to hear a person out, they turn their ears away from the truth and and uh, they have to embrace a distorted view and then argue with you. Anyhow, go ahead on. But since I agree with you, what I wanted to state was, one of the questions that we would need to be ready to answer would be, if God is warm and restrictive, then how do we end up in a world like we're living in, from a pro- propositional viewpoint? Sure. And because I'm going from some research that looked at families with the four characteristics, cold and restrictive, warm and restrictive, cold and permissive, and warm and permissive. Mm-hmm. If God is not warm and permissive, nor is he cold and restrictive, if God is warm and restrictive, then how do we end up in this kind of a world? And I'm looking at the, the parable of the lost son or prodigal son. Sure. And uh, God appears in the parable to be cold and restrictive with the older brother and warm and restrictive with the younger brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't agree with that. And, and, and here's why I say that. I, I would agree that I would assert, and, and we, I, w- I would want to be careful, I would assert that the position of God is static 
It is consistent. It is immutable, unchangeable. And in that context, the father there is representing God, the father uh, from whom all blessings flow. He is the epitome of love as its source. The son is the expression of love as its mediating uh, source. And the spirit of God is the effectual love of God in its immediate uh, efficacy in our lives. We feel, perceive, sense, and know the love of God by the Holy Ghost being poured out into our hearts. We understand the love of God, and you know this is true, Dan, through the mode and manifestation of his son, Jesus Christ, within the framework of his redemptive sacrifice on our behalf. This is what causes us to love God the Father because of the enormous sacrifice and collaboration of the triune God in their conditionally uh, uh, preparing a possibility and capacity for us to actually enter into their loving relationship. Nothing could be more conditional on what God did to bring us into the auspices of his love. But in the parable of the prodigal son, this is what I would say, that the prodigal son who left is exactly the same as the prodigal son who stayed. They're both prodigal. One's prodigality is seen by the overt outward uh, uh, dissipation of materialism and and profligacy. The other ones, uh, uh, the other prodigal was a prodigal in his soul where he had dissipated uh, by virtue of a misunderstanding of the warm but restrained love of God the Father in, in the household. God the Father gave them everything they needed, but they had to operate out of parameters of obedience to God um, as as all of us should. So one left because he didn't like the boundaries. The other stayed, but had left God the Father long ago because he didn't care for the boundaries at all. And the father was able to justify himself um, when when that latter son came to him and said, you didn't do this for me, you didn't do that for me, you didn't do the other thing. And, uh, and, and God the Father was able to make it very clear, all that I have is yours. Well, he had all that he had, all that the father had given to those two sons was given to both of them equally. Equally, They just didn't like the boundary categories that they were subject to. Now, that's the way that I'm kind of putting it. But now you get to you get to justify those two distinctives right now before uh, we move on to some other thoughts. I think that's clearly said and well said. I'd like to thank you for that, because uh, I just wanted to kind of expand what my reaction is to what you proposed here yes. at the beginning of the broadcast, and uh, it's sort of relating. So I appreciate you explaining that because it's a better take. Right, and the reason so. reason why I'm quick to do that is because I'm actually working on a message right now on that particular text around those two realities. We often spend most of our time looking at the prodigal son that left, but what about the prodigal son that stayed? Both of them operated out of the offense of love having boundaries, restraints, and control factors by which love defines itself operating towards its object in its best interest. But when our hearts are evil and our hearts are wicked, we will either go the way of an outward rebellion in the world or an inward rebellion in religion. And that those disparities run all the way through the Bible. As you know, you have people who have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And they blame God for laying down uh, restrictive rules. Like there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes unto the father, but by me, they hate that. 
love. That's what Jesus meant when he says, for my love, they have hated me. And then the others just run off and live like hell and just continue in the profligacy of their sin because they don't believe that God will punish them. And uh, and God will punish both if they reject the love of God that is exclusively found in the person of Christ, which comes with conditions. It comes with parameters. It comes with uh, necessary uh, response mechanisms that God has to give to them uh, in order that they might believe. Uh, men and women don't believe God by nature and and therefore reject God's overture of coming to him through Christ. And in God's love, he gives some the ability to come and he lets the others have their own way and never ever retrieves them and this will be proven to be just and righteous on the last day uh did you have anything else you want to contribute if you look at genesis 2 and 3 then uh some people would read that as god appearing to be permissive but we could just go on from there yeah but again now you know i don't I, i i don't really at all see that as permissive i see that as god operating out of a transcendent view of an outcome eschatologically that necessitated the fall of mankind in order for him to implement a redemptive plan that fundamentally glorifies God in his mercy and his justice when when the whole eschaton is, is finished. And I, again, I don't mean to to negate what you're saying. I, I know you said people might see it that way. Uh, but it, again, here's Adam and Eve two of God's children who have been loved enough to be created in God's image, given the whole world to have. And yet God puts parameters on his love conditions on his love. You can have everything but this tree. And so what do they do? They prove that all of us by nature are rebel hellbound sinners who don't like restraints. And yet God turns around and hunts them down, clothes them in the righteousness of Christ, disciplines them and sends them down a path of sanctification that would lead to God's fullness repeated throughout history until we come to the end of time. God will be just on the last day when he punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Thank you for your call, my dear brother. Let me go to line number uh, three and talk with Sean and Retlin. Line number three, Sean and Retlin, are you there? I'm here, Pastor Jesse. How are you? I'm great. What's your thoughts about our topic? Uh, uh, thank you. It's a great topic. Um, there's so many different ways that, uh, to, to look at it um, or just to angles to take on it um, that would all, I think, support and prove the idea that God's love is conditional, yep. that God's love is specific. Um, one angle I think that that is really helpful that I've always used when talking to people about this issue um, is the, the nature of God's fatherly love towards his people, towards his sons and daughters in a, in a disciplinary way. And when you when you take scriptures like Hebrews twelve, where it says he chastens those whom he loves, right? Um, the Book of Proverbs has passages where it talks about. It's, I'm paraphrasing it, forgive me, but because it's basically if you if you fail to discipline your children, you actually hate them. Exactly. And so, so one of the great assurances in my life that since God has saved me is that has given me assurance is when I have fallen, God has chastised me, and that shows me that He loves me, because He doesn't let me stay in my foolishness, but He He whips me back into that, back onto that narrow road, and um, and that comes through the gospel, that yep. comes through the, the goading 
yep. of the word, yep. God poking us yep. with with the scriptures and, and, and knocking us upside our head to get us back on that narrow path so we can just keep pressing forward, following Christ. And and so the the notion that God can permissibly love somebody without dealing with their sin and disciplining them is to say that God actually hates those he loves. Yep. He says he hates those the father who feels this and the son hates that child. Yep. And 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 when you look at passages like in Romans nine with Jacob and Esau, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. Jacob was a deceiver. Yep. But he was one of God's people. Yep. And so God's love was poured out on Jacob and it's an actually a sexual love that changes Jacob and doesn't let Jacob stain his sin. And so Excellent. Those are biblical verses that many of the uh, Armenian camp and people who just can't handle the exclusivity of God's um, of God's effectual love in Christ um, jump over and fail to want to admit that there is an aspect of God that righteously hates sin and sinners and will give them over. When you talk about God chastening us, there is that passage that says that God lets them go too. that's Romans one. That's the culture you and I are living in, that God gives men up to a reprobate mind that they might do things to themselves and in themselves that are inappropriate. And as I'm talking about the lie of the LGBTQ plus community uh, here as a conflation of the two categories, um, I, I hope that your family doesn't ever have to bump into that. But many of us who live in modern cities and in modern cultures, as the children of Israel had to deal with, if you read your Bible carefully, when God said in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 21, thou shalt not, a man shall not wear that which pertains to a woman, neither shall a woman put on that which uh, pertaineth to a man. That cross dress principle had everything to do with operating out of the clarity of a bi-gender specificity versus the arbitrary choice that one might want to adopt to be a man or, or pretend to be a man when in fact they are a female and vice versa. Uh, and and because we have uh, broken the floodgates of the boundaries of righteousness in the context of our identity, and I know you're listening to me in my sermon series, you, you already get it, but for the folks that are listening who have never heard this before, we are now reaping the whirlwind in our culture around people who have just so far uh, departed from the biblical parameters of reality that they are redefining themselves any kind of way they want to and demand that we love them unconditionally. This is what Ellen DeGeneres is doing, taking a biblical rhetoric that is not biblical, but Christian, and then using it as a defense against the Christian who would use the word of God to determine whether or not the behavior of such a person as Zaya is even appropriate in order for us to embrace. And I'm looking forward to others who may want to chime in who are who have these personal challenges around these same subjects as well. These are difficult matters, but God has warned us in his word that um, that we have to talk about them and we have to have a clear representation of biblical truth if we're going to be consistent in our demonstration of who God is in the word, who God is in Christ, and who God is in us. Thank you, brother, for your call. Got to take a break. Way overdue. Got two lines open, one 367 Two lines open, one 367 Believe me, I've got more to say. Uh, around these matters because it's here now. As Aldous Huxley put it, we are in the brave new world. I'll be right back. 